I have to admit, I was a little surprised when I saw this one on the request list for my uh, ruminations. Usually, when people ask me to look at a game, it's a game that has a fairly large amount of in-depth lore or theory crafting or, or some kind of history to go into, you know, something like that. But I was a little, you know, most people, when they think of the Devil May Cry series, they don't really think about the story side of things, do they? They think about the combat, they think about the gameplay, they think about it being incredibly difficult, and they think about bad reboots. Oh, sorry, sorry. But when I saw this one, I was like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll take that one on, why not? After all, I do list it as one of my personal favorite games of all time, so why not, sure. And it was a bit of a joy to go back through. I had to turn the difficulty down a little bit, I'll admit that because I was in a hurry and I kept dying. <laughs> um, this is one of those games that I got into primarily because of the quality. Let me explain a little bit about the backstory. We're going to be talking a little bit about the DMC series as a whole, 1, 2, 3, and 4, as we go through this. Just a little bit of the other games. So my friend is the first one who introduced me to Devil May Cry, the first one. And I was like, he kept describing it, and it sounded cool, it sounded interesting, and he kept describing it as, like, basically a really weird action RPG with a lot of cool factors, how it was originally described. So I'm like, okay, sure, I'm, I'm with that. And I tried it out, and it was okay. Um, I know this is a little bit sacrilege, but I didn't actually like the first Devil May Cry that much. I played it a couple of times. I believe I have literally played it twice all the way through. And I enjoyed it, but I've never really felt the urge to go back and replay it. It certainly has some extremely uh, cheesy camp moments of the didn't-intended variety. <laughs> uh, very, very perfect game for a Mystery Science Theater 3000 kind of a thing. So when Devil May Cry 2 came out, I was at least, you know, on board with it. My friend and I, same guy, uh, we went out and re-rented re it, and then we returned it that night. I didn't like Devil May Cry 2 at all. The story was basically non-existent, and much, much worse than Devil May Cry 1. Devil May Cry 1 at least had that, oh, you can enjoy, it's so bad, it's good kind of factor. Devil May Cry 2 was so bad, it's bad. And the gameplay was just not interesting to me at all. I, I remember being bored out of my skull the whole time. I've never felt the desire to go back and play it. So when 3 came out, I was already just like, eh, whatever. By complete happenstance, another friend of mine that I had that I met later, this is some year, sometime like a couple of years after Devil May Cry Three had actually come out, he was like, "Dude, you know, you, have you ever played the DMC series?" And I was like, "Yeah," and I basically gave the opinion I just gave to you to him, and he was like, "Oh man, you haven't played the third one?" I was like, "No, why?" So he sat me down, and I watched the intro cutscene, and my immediate reaction, and I admit this without shame, was, "Dude, that was awesome!" Now. <laughs> So I was kind of hooked with DMC3, pretty much from that first cutscene of launching Dante, just kind of be Dante. Um, but And the funny thing is, to this day, I, I can't, it's one of those weird, it's like, it's like, Doc, uh, not Doctor Who, uh, Bond. I can't really consider myself a fan of James Bond, even though there are some of his works, you know, some James, I shouldn't say some of his works, some James Bond works I am actually really enjoy, but they're, they're, there's the few. It's the same thing with Devil May Cry. There are two Devil May Cry games I really enjoy out of five. That's not really a good ratio, so I can't really call myself a DMC fan. But the thing I want to talk about here is what kept me into Devil May Cry 3, why it is so high on the list. Well, there's several reasons why, obviously. But the first and biggest reason why is because I was expecting some enjoyable action, you know, pseudo-RPGE kind of combat fun. And I got that. But what surprised me was how well designed it was, and how well executed it was, and how interesting of a story was under the surface of that. 
the fact that there was a story of significance at all, the fact that it was actually well presented instead of being the unintentional camp of the first one or the disgustingly boring of the second one, that had my interest right off the bat. There's only basically four characters. Hang on, one, two, three. Yeah, four characters in this game. Really. Uh, there's a few other speaking roles, but there's only four actual characters in this game. And yet, for s some reason, they actually managed to stretch them out into being something that I found actually interesting. But I don't want to get too much ahead of myself. This game, in many ways, kept me interested because of that quality effect. Uh, the gameplay design thing is a good thing, what I mentioned. Um, it's easy enough. It's, it's, okay. I've talked about this recently. Some people think the way the the key to good gameplay design is to change how you how the tools work for the player. And that is half of good gameplay design. But as I was talking when I was going through Four Job Fiesta not too long ago, that's only half of why FF5 is good. The other half is because they designed the bosses and the enemy encounters throughout the course of FF5 to make it so that those enemies utilize the features of the classes. In other words, what is effectively the variance between character design and level design from a gameplay perspective, the player character and the levels they go through. Environment design, if you will. Um, and this is, again, purely the gameplay side of things. I'm not talking about art or graphics. I'm not talking about storytelling. Purely the gameplay side of these things. If you design both of these equally so that the, the player character has plenty of variance and choices and options and the, the design of the levels and the bosses and the enemies matches and complements those, that's when you have a really well-designed game. And DMC3 fits that like, well, like a hand in a glove, actually. It is startlingly spot-on, the, 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 just the level design in general. You are encouraged to go ahead and try multiple different types of weapons and multiple methods of getting through the enemies. And, of course, there's the other big thing, uh, which is... How do I put this? Um, this game has combos. Now, at this day and age, I have to actually explain what I mean by that. Once upon a time, this was normal, say, about the Street Fighter II slash Mortal Kombat II era. Combos were when you, the player, decide to do certain types of attacks and special attacks in a sequence or a type of sequence, a, dyna a dynamic sequence, that had a desired effect. Because you had actually figured out which attacks did which effects and could hit which areas, so you could string them together in a way that worked. That's what combos used to be. Sometime around the Killer Instinct era, and this, is, this became true later on too, combos started being, you do a couple button pushes and then... I don't want to sound disingenuous. That, that sounds derogatory. What I mean is you have to put it put in a sequence, like at the at the front, and then the character does this whole combo. You know, Killer Instinct did that quite a bit. God of War did that a bit. You know, there are quite a few games that do that. Devil May Cry 3 goes back to the original method of combos. There's no combo combo. There's no, like, do, you know, down, down straight forward, down straight forward, B, B, A, select, start, or whatever. Um, instead, it's you do an attack... And then you decide to follow up that attack with another attack. So you, the player, have the agency of deciding how your, your combat style is going to work. And this works brilliantly because of the fact that, A, each of the weapons does actually feel different in addition to having different effects. Uh, for those curious, I'm sure someone's going to ask, my personal favorite weapons are is actually the Cerberus uh, Tri-Flail, I guess is what I'd call that. Um, that's pretty much my go-to weapon. I really enjoy uh, wielding that. My second favorite would, of course, be Beowulf. Everyone knows that one. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so that type of... Uh, it gives it all to the player. It lets you decide how you want to play, and it means that it's a very skill-based game. 
I have actually used Devil May Cry 3 to talk about in the opposite, Kingdom Hearts 2. One of my biggest complaints about Kingdom Hearts 2 was that it felt like it wasn't very skill-based. It felt like rather than you actually having to think about what you do and how you do it, you just hit, you know, you hit reaction command. And then you win. And I, I used to hate that. There's a reason I came up with that whole no reaction command thing. Now, I myself have said that options are good, and I do like the option of playing a game just for fun every now and again and not having to, not having to try. But I can't help but praise this game for basically being pretty difficult in a good way. It's difficult because if you just try to button mash your way through this game, you're probably not going to make it. I mean, they do have easier difficulties. In fact, if you die several times at the beginning of the game, the game will actually say, I'm sorry, do you want an easier difficulty? And then you can unlock, you basically unlock the easiest difficulty available. And then there's the, like, six layers of difficulties above normal, which uh, are pretty fun as well. I, for reference, I went through on normal for this playthrough, you know, the, the standard difficulty. Um... I have actually beaten this game on several of the harder difficulties, including Dante Must Die mode. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Took a while. One of the reasons I don't want to do this for this rumination. Point being, though, this is really the important part. By making it skill-based, by giving all of the agency of how the gameplay works to the player, not only are you tailoring the gameplay experience to the player automatically, just by the nature of the design of it, but you are doing something that very few games pull off appropriately. See, the first cutscene really hooked me because it was cool. And it was a good way to inform the character. But it was cool. And then I played the first stage, and I was cool. There are very few games where you can look and be and act just as awesome as the cutscenes are. There's a reason that term cutscene power exists. Mass Effect 2, much as I love that game to death, is very big... Uh, is very flawed in the sense that it has a lot of cutscene power. Jack and uh, Kasumi both come to mind immediately as characters that are just way stronger in cutscenes than they, than they can actually be in gameplay. In Devil May Cry 3, you are just as strong in gameplay. In fact, someone argue you're stronger. And you can be, on all those super cool things you see, you can basically be just as super cool as long as you know what you're doing. And it is very rewarding to go and just be awesome while kicking ass the entire time. And that's probably, I know this is a long way to say this, but that's probably the biggest reason why DMC3 has so much staying power for me, why I still enjoy playing it to this day. Um, and it's awesome, and that's, I, just, I just wanted to really get that in. Um, I mentioned, uh, the. so let's talk about one other thing, though, really quick here. Uh, the I, I kind of already discussed this, the dynamic difficulty thing. By varying the nature of the enemies, the, their positioning, their speed, the, 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 the type of attacks they do, what you have is basically the opposite of a gear check. Now you can and indeed should upgrade your stuff in order to be able to push your way through this game, but there's no point at which you're just going to be able to go and grind in order to raise your stats in order to be able to pass a gear check. There are no gear checks is what I'm trying to say in this game. There are only skill checks and reaction checks and pay attention checks. And I like that for this type of gameplay. In other words, if I don't beat a boss, I know it's my fault. I screwed up. I made a mistake. I wasn't quick enough or I wasn't paying attention or I was distracted by something, you know, phone ring, whatever. Um, that actually happened. My sister, I was like, sis, you killed me. Um, it's my fault. And I take ownership of that, and I know that. There's no point in time I, w I felt frustrated because the game was cheating me out of something that I felt I should have. One of the things I hate most is when I make no mistakes as the player, or at least no big mistakes as the player, and I still lose because of... Well, there's several reasons that could happen. 
That doesn't happen in Devil May Cry 3. There's no RNG, there's no gear checks, there's no item level, there's no grind wall, there's no group wall. If I'm good enough, I progress. And that's a very rewarding style of gameplay. I wonder how many of my viewers right now are thinking, then why didn't you like Dark Souls? Moving on. Um, the... Uh, <laughs> and I, and I want to mention this because there is a lot of rule of cool in this uh, in this series in general, but especially in this installment. Probably my favorite example is actually when you wield a motorcycle against someone. or And by someone, I mean lots of enemies. Um, it's a shame I couldn't do that in the actual gameplay, but it was still very, very cool. Um, before I talk... Well, let's, let's go ahead and talk about the weapons here. So, first of all... Uh, the weapon styles, I'm actually not going to cover that in, in super depth detail. I don't think there's really a big need to do so. You know, you've got your longsword. You've got your triflail, like I said, my favorite. You've got your freaking guitar. Awesome weapon, by the way. You've got your dual-wield swords, which I wanted to like more than I did. I don't know what it is about them, but they never really were something I enjoyed playing. I'm not, I'm not sure why. Uh, then you've got your uh, Beowulf, you know. Two-handed, or uh, two-handed. I do have two hands. Uh, unarmed fighting style. And that is basically it. Not counting the whole, you know, extra sword thing with the Virgil. We're not talking about that here. Um, but I don't want to talk about the gameplay aspect of that. I'm kind of segueing out of gameplay here. Because what I want to talk to you about is the lore of DMC3. And one of the reasons why I still find this game enjoyable. In addition to the, the incredibly punishing, difficult gameplay. Each weapon doesn't really tell a story, but there is a little bit of, of flavor to them that helps flesh them out other than you got the power-up. Um, the Rebellion is the most obvious one. It's the Rebellion, and I'll talk a little bit more about the significance of that when I start talking about Dante and his character arc. Um, Cerberus and Agnian, and I wrote it down, Agnian Prudra? Prudru? Something like that? The, 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 the dual-wielding. Um, both of them along with, to an extent, Nevin, uh, which is the guitar, all have sort of the same flavor to them as far as lore. So Cerberus, of course, was like, oh, you're just a human. Oh, wait, no, you're not. Agni and Rudra are like, oh, we will guard this place. Wait, please, no one's been ever been able to wield this. And, of course, Nevin, the, uh, the seductress who intimates that she has been uh, intimate with your father before, which is kind of terrifying. Yeah. <clears throat> also, no talking. Um, <laughs> imagine if they did that to me. I kind of have the skull for that. What I want to say, though, is all three of these kind of showcase the same thing. That Dante, even at this point in time, keep in mind, he is not fully in control of his overall powers at this hit point in history. And yet, even now, he has no difficulty whatsoever wielding the power of demonism, of a demon, that he can master their power and actually use it for himself. And I, and, and I want to explain that a little bit, because the whole point is that a demon's power is chaotic by nature. This is a recurring th theme throughout the whole series, and we see that in this one too. And it takes either a great deal of confidence or a great deal of, of you know internal strength or a great deal of discipline in order to be able to actually wield demonic power and do so properly. Not to skip forward in my notes too much here, but Arkham, the game's main villain, doesn't have any of those things. And in fact, he fails at wielding demonic power. And yet Dante, so effortlessly, each time he encounters a new demon, is able to take their soul and wield them as if they were simply another extension of himself, with effortless ease. 
I like that. It, it helps to inform Dante as a character. Also, the uh, the guitar thing is probably the closest thing to playing a mage type in this game that we have, which is just that's something I wanted to mention there. Um, now I want to. So now that we're kind of segueing into lore stuff here, I want to get a couple of bullet points that don't really fit anywhere else in my notes. First of all, yeah, I liked Devil May Cry Four. I did, genuinely. I liked the the cutscenes and story in addition to the gameplay. Most of the cutscenes, in fact, I would say all but one of them that I liked were the cutscenes with Dante, because, duh, this the Devil May Cry Four Cry's Four's Dante was basically Devil May Cry 3's Dante, just with age and experience tacked on, and I liked that. Also, um, hit the scene with him and I forget his name, the, the, the giant scientist bug guy, was awesome. <laughs> I'm sorry, I am in love with that scene. It's so great. But I will admit Devil May Cry, has some, Devil May Cry 4 has some very serious flaws. Uh, let's name one right off the top of my head. Kitty! 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 <laughs> I just I can't get out of it. Um, but also, even he has a pretty cool scene. Like I mentioned there was one scene uh, that didn't involve Dante that I liked with him, and that's when Virgil uh, awakens within him. And we, and we get the backstory plot of the fact that God actually reached down into hell after Nilo Angelo was defeated, ripped out Virgil's soul, and basically nested it in, uh, in Nero when Nero was first born. And uh, it's just his nice little underweaving there. And, of course, the way that Dante wields uh, Virgil's sword, I forget the name of it off the top of my head, is, is, is spot on. But anyways, so that's, that's that one bullet point. Like I said, it doesn't really fit anywhere else. The second bullet point uh, I wanted to mention was that this game has a lot of the David Tennant effect. Now, I know what you're saying. What the hell is that? Because I haven't actually referenced that that often. I've actually referenced it recently, though, which is part of why it's fresh in my mind. The David Tennant effect is uh, named after David Tennant because he knows how to portray silly and ridiculous, and yet when he turns the knob over to serious, he becomes deadly serious, and both are portrayed just as well. He he When, when David Tennant portrays, you know, the doctor... Uh, the Time Lord Triumphant, for example. I know some of you know what I mean by that. There is just an aura of absolute menace and power, and it's just, it's deadly serious. And then the other time, he's, he's you know, wandering around, da -da 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 -da, you know. It's, uh, I like games, books, movies that pull off the David Tennant effect rather well, and this is, this is a good example. This whole game is like that. The game goes from being, you know, deadly serious about the terrible darkness and the demons and we must save the world, you know. And, and it does it well, though. Arkham is horrifying, genuinely horrifying. And yet it, the game also has no problems having a scene where Dante's like, let's get this party started! And then he hits the button on the jukebox, and then nothing... Nothing's happening. Hang on. <laughs> the game has just as much room for both. Some very nice directing on the cutscenes, by the way. Probably one of my favorite tidbits is where he's walking over to his gun, starts to get to his gun, gets past his gun, re reaches over and grabs a slice of pizza. Very Dante. Um, let's go ahead and talk about... Uh, let's, let's actually skip ahead of my notes just a sec. Hang on. I can grab a page with these wonderful gloves. I'm actually going to talk about something weird last, so bear with me here. Let's talk about Dante first. So, he is incredibly casually confident for pretty much the first half of the game, right up until he loses to Virgil. 
and then you know they're, they're Arkham is actually one who calls Virgil back from that before they can actually have a rematch. Um, first of all, it's maybe I'm reading too much into this one, but I feel like there's actually a decent amount, not a huge amount. These aren't super fleshed out FF6 style characters. However, I feel there is characterization under the four main characters of this game. Uh, Dante, of course, it, it, he he strikes me as as having the same problem Virgil does in the opposite direction. Dante is someone who has no focus, no purpose, no reason for being other than fighting demons. Now, naturally, that makes sense since Dante was present when his mother was killed or, in some stories, torn to shreds by the demons sent by Mundus. So that actually makes sense, that he would pretty much do nothing but that. But it's very clear he lacks any kind of direction, any kind of focus, any kind of purpose, any kind of will. He's just doing it because it's fun. And yet, at the same time, you can tell it bothers him. You can tell that throughout the course of the thing, he's just kind of doing it because, what else have I got to do, right? I mean, sure, why not? And over the course of the game, he kind of slowly grows out of that to the point where he understands, okay, I can keep doing what I want to do, but now I'm doing it for a reason. Now I actually have some kind of purpose behind it. His tone changes, his presentation changes. He stops being the kid and starts starts growing up a little bit. This whole game, of course, being subtitled Dante's Awakening, isn't just about him awakening the uh, the devil power within him, but actually the fact that he starts awakening as an individual. Um, he also... Uh, it's, he also serves a very nice contrast, and it's kind of going back to that David Tennant effect. Virtually every boss he encounters, the boss is like, I will defeat all of you! I am deadly powerful and incredible! Agni and uh, Rudros are like the only exception to this. They were basically a, a two-man uh, Abbott and Costello act. But every other boss is like, oh, Humans and mortals are not allowed here. I will destroy everything. I will kill every last son of Sparta. Blah, blah, blah. And yet, and then Dante's over there like, hey, come on, boy, who's a good boy, who's a good boy? It makes a very nice contrast. Now, that being said, there's one thing I find interesting uh, about Dante is the fact that, first of all, he's got really good banter with Virgil. Uh, it actually works surprisingly smoothly. I've always gotten the impression, especially after the end of this, uh, by the end of this game, that the two of them are actually a lot closer than either of them is willing to admit. There's a scene towards the end where the two of them actually wield each other's weapons, which for me just kind of concreted a theory I've had for a long time. Namely, that both of them are basically the same person, and both of them hate that fact, and so Dante tries really hard to be more casual, more loose, basically trying too hard to show that he doesn't care about trying too hard. You know, that wonderful thing. Um in order to distance himself from Virgil, whereas Virgil does the exact opposite and pretends to be this cool, collected, calm individual. When it's shown many times, he kind of isn't. That is a facade for him, just as Dante's is a facade for him. The similarities between the both that they share in this, in this distancing each other is their confidence. I mentioned that several times earlier. Both of them have tremendous confidence in their abilities and what they're doing. And both of them kind of lean towards the cocky thing. Although I would say Dante is more cocky whereas Virgil is more arrogant. And it ends up tripping both of them during the course of this one. Um, I also had a vague thought here. I shared it with my sister. She actually disagreed with this thought, so I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, I had this thought that Dante and Virgil, one of the reasons their rivalry is so violent is because they basically can't hurt each other. 
one of the things that's shown several times throughout the, the entire series, actually, is that one of the powers, if you will, that comes along with being demon-infused or whatever is endurance. The fact that you can just be stabbed and kit and kit and just all blown up with a thing, shot in the face, it doesn't matter, right? You, know, you just live through it. Obviously, that you can eventually be drained of that, and that's what happens during the course of you know, like the first three fourths of this game. Is you're slowly drained. Is is the the two uh, brothers are slowly drained to the point where Arkham could actually keep up with them. However, I do uh, feel like if you were a kid and your bro and you had a rivalry with your brother, like most siblings do, and you don't have consequence from actually physically enacting that, like in real life, you punch your brother, that that's gonna hurt. It's going to hurt you, it's going to hurt him, and it's going to be a lasting impression. And you, kids generally learn early on, most kids I should say, learn at an early age what violence actually means through pain. Now imagine if you punched him and he was just like, no reaction. You don't have that experience of learning that violence equal bad. And so I've, 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 I've theorized several times that maybe that's one of the reasons they have no problem literally stabbing each other as often as they feel like. Um... The so uh, and there's a really nice touch. The two of them actually share effectively the same model, the actual uh, in-game model. The only big difference is that Virgil deliberately pulls his hair back. But there's this great scene in the rain where the rain is pulling his hair forward, and so when he's doing that, it, other than the the clothing, obviously you can't actually tell them apart. Dante and Virgil basically looking like twins at that point, with the same hairstyle, same hair color, same everything else. It's actually very well presented. Um, but this is a great way to segue into Virgil. Now, some people have asked me, asked, actually asked me what his motivations are. And I find that interesting, because to me his motivations are actually quite apparent, to the point where it's, I almost feel like I'm doing you a disservice by talking about it. He is someone who was not strong enough to save his mother. And he wants more power. He wants as much power as it takes. He flat out says this to Dante. You cannot protect anyone, not even yourself, if you don't have enough strength, or however he phrases it. It's so apparent that he has gotten to the point where he has no purpose or focus, just like Dante doesn't. The difference is, Dante eventually will get to the part where he, he starts up his business as a way to give him a focus and a purpose. Whereas Virgil try to emulate having a purpose and a focus by gathering more power. But there was nothing at the end of that power. There was nothing beyond that. It was just more power and then... In other words, Virgil is just as much of a kid as Dante is. He's just doing a better job of hiding it. And again, I keep talking about these two so much. The, the, the dichotomy between the two, the thematic significance between the two, the similarities between the two, is basically the entire point of this entire game, the Sons of Sparta. And uh, this is basically the only time Virgil really gets screen time. It's amusing to me because Virgil is actually among the more popular DMC characters in general, and it's pretty much all because of this game. <laughs> um, he is very well presented, I think. He also, I also find it interesting that both he and, and uh, Dante, from an out-of-character perspective, represents the two most common sides of cool. You've got the aloof, serious, unflappable cool, and then you've got the cocky, arrogant, doesn't give a damn cool. Let's talk about Lady briefly. So, 
lady, I've theorized for years. In fact, originally I thought this was true until I read that it apparently wasn't true. And I, I, I think this, this is part of my head canon. And again, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I think lady actually is superhuman. I don't think she's fully half infused like, say, Arkham is. And I don't think she has the incredible power that, say, Dante and Virgil do. But I do think she is above human standards. Say it about Captain America level from the MCU to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Uh, there's two big reasons why I think that. First of all, she demonstrates some pretty significant skill and agility on many occasions. Um, she does not, however, demonstrate the same kind of endurance that most demon-infused people do, which is significant and, again, indicative of the fact that she is not you know, purely augmented or whatever. The other reason I think it is because it makes perfect sense to me. Because of Arkham. Arkham, of course, wanted to become half-demonic. Uh, well, actually, no, that's not true. He wanted to become full-demonic. He failed, and as a result, you know, he, he has the scarring, and he's, you know, he's got partial powers but not full powers. It makes so much sense to me to the, that a man who has no problem murdering his own wife and later on referring to it as just one miserable life sacrificed for a greater good. In this case, him becoming a god was actually his motivation. Um, I think that someone who is so willing to do that would have no problem prototyping the, the, the procedure on his daughter, trying to do sort of a test augmentation on her, which enabled him to further uh, practice it So for when he did it for himself. So, like, in terms of power level, she would be, like, at a quarter of what he is, whereas he is, like, half of what the brothers are, to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. <clears throat> now, I know that kind of takes away from part of the thematic humans are special uh, point, but I think there's plenty of that point being hammered into our heads without her having to actually be human and yet still somehow keeping stride uh, with these very superhuman individuals. Uh, one thing I do want to mention, I actually have very few thoughts about, uh, or notes about Lady, which is a shame. I wish we'd seen more of her as a character, because she's more of an interesting premise for a character for me than the other two. Uh, at the same time, they, like I said, they flesh out Dante and Virgil so that they both have their obvious masks, and yet both of them have surprising depths underneath that mask. Lady, by contrast, basically everything you see there is everything that she is. She is not putting on a mask. She is just an angry person with a tragic backstory who's pissed off at demons and pissed off at her father and wants to end this crap. And she still cries when her father dies. Of course she does, though. Why wouldn't she? Not just for the loss of her father, but for the fact that she was connected to someone who was, let's put it as nicely as we can, so damned evil. Some people have asked about the romantic connections between Lady and Dante. All I'm going to say about that is Lady makes a hell of a lot better of a fit for him than Trish does. Trish is just... No, that, that shouldn't happen. Um, <laughs> I have a few other little tidbit points here. Um, we see a little bit about demon hierarchy throughout the course of this game. Uh, the most obvious thing being that if you win... You know, you, you keep what you kill kind of a situation. It, it makes me wonder, because that's exactly what happened with Mundus in his backstory. Mundus actually went after the previous Demon King, killed him, and took the reins from him and took the leadership. And uh, it's actually funny, the, the actual art designers behind Mundus uh, put a lot of effort into him, and it kind of shows, actually, if I can segue just a moment to talk about this, because he portrays himself as this wonderfully godlike, angelic figure, and let, he's just this ugly mass of flesh and hands and eyes underneath it. You know, he's a mess. He's disgusting. And I like that. I like that. And it kind of goes to show a lot about his character. But anyways, I get off topic. 
Um, and it kind of is, is shown throughout the course of the game to each major boss that we manage to bring down is someone who literally or otherwise ends up serving us in the end in order to assist us. The only exception to this was the guy who had this massive hard-on against uh, trying to kill Sparta and the one who uh, Virgil ended up taking down in the end and forcing to serve him. Also, a nice way to show that Virgil had just as much capacity to uh, c command demonic power as Dante does. The uh, one little note here, too. I mentioned earlier that Arkham couldn't actually handle uh, that power. For a bit, he could. For a little bit, while he's full of confidence, he's full of strength, and he's like, yes, I know what I'm doing, and I will stand tall atop this and look at me, and blah, blah, blah. But the moment he's challenged at all, he devolves into this ugly, hideous, violet blob thing. This terrible, disgusting grotesquerie with, with multiple hands and all sorts of other horrible, gross stuff. I imagine he would look much, much worse in a modern age game. I mean, think of Bloodborne, for example, and some of the things from that. Blech. Anyways, um, it makes sense to me that Arkham, A, would look that way because he cannot handle that power. He does not have the discipline. He does not have the confidence. He does not have the will. He is just a child playing with toys he doesn't understand, right? But B, and more importantly, and this is actually confirmed by the actual creators of the game, uh, that was done deliberately to showcase that n that was not actually Sparta's power that warped him into that. That was him warping Sparta's power into that. In other words, Arkham was such an ugly individual inside that it was literally manifested out outside. And again, that's where I parallel that to the Mundus thing from earlier. Let's talk about Arkham last. So first of all, Arkham was deliberately designed as an homage to the Joker. Uh, in a few ways, which I find interesting because his portrayal as the Jester is actually very much not like the Joker for me, at least in his actual uh, acting and voice and dialogue and whatnot. He, Joker has always been a little bit of a psychotic clown kind of a thing, but Jester feels much more like his namesake, a Jester, someone who makes bad, silly, ridiculous jokes in order to try and portray himself as, as, as a source of mockery, and he himself mocking those around him. It was the perfect presentation in order to be able to edge Dante forward, because he portrays this character knowing that it will egg Dante onwards. He portrays um, the, the slovenly, you know, the, 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 the uh, psychophant, you know, the, 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 the humble servant before Virgil, knowing that will cow him because of his particular form of arrogance. And then, of course, for Lady, he tries to play on her sympathy, saying, oh, no, I was consumed by Virgil, please, you must, you know, all that stuff. He actually plays all three of them rather well and gets all three of them to the point where he needs them. It's actually not that unimpressive what he accomplishes. It is therefore much more amusing to me that he had no idea what he was getting into, you know. And he, it's very clear he was way, way in over his head. He just didn't actually realize it. Arkham, I have the most to talk about. Uh, he's evil. He's disgustingly evil. As I mentioned earlier, he has this scene where he plays on ladies' fears, right? And says, you know, oh, your poor mother, you're such a sweet girl, and blah, blah, blah. And just absolutely just tearing her heartstrings. Just... I don't think that was Arkham at all. I think the real Arkham, the Arkham we actually know to be, you know, the, the real person, if you will, was the one who was laying dying on the top of the tower of blah, 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 um, when Lady was standing there and right before she kills him, when he gives his whole speech about, you know, one miserable life. Was that so wrong to kill one miserable life for all that I sought to achieve? And the fact that he actually, in some level, thought that she would be okay with this, that there's nothing wrong with what he did. It's actually a recurring theme in his character. There's this portrayal of someone who actually thinks being evil is okay. 
it's a normal thing. It's how things should be. There's this screwed up scene where he acts angry, and I feel like this wasn't really acting. I should say he, he portrays, he is angry at the fact that how dare Sparta go so far out of his way to lock away all this stuff. We should have had access to all these evil, horrible, disgusting things because, damn it, that's how things should be. And this comes across in some of his, uh, his, his backstory, that he, or not his backstory, but the backstory he gives from the lore. Remember, this tower of horrible, unmitigated evil was not built by demons. It was built by people. That says so much just by itself. That's messed up, actually, if I could be so bold. But it says a lot because that's probably one of the biggest themes about this work in overall, which I'm going to weave in here really quick before I continue talking about Arkham. The idea that humans are all of the above. We see in this, the, probably the most good person in this game is a human, and the most evil person is also a human. It's not the big demon lord or any of the, the other demon creatures or the half-demon or anything like that. It's a guy. <laughs> and he is clearly and distinguishably messed up. There's a speech he gives, which I thought about writing down or just reading here, and I actually decided against it because it's just a screwed-up speech. Feel free, Literally, if you go Google DMC3 Arkham speech... You'll, you'll find it. I'm not going to repeat it here. But it's where he's talking about how happy and wonderful we will be to accept getting into the muck and the filth and just... Ah, oh, God, dude! Just, what the crap is wrong with this guy? Now, I will have to say, though, personally, that... He, at, at several points, he excuses his actions by saying, well, others have done something. The great Sparta did less than I did. Why am I so wrong for accomplishing what I did? In my opinion, his motivations were, this is sounding a little cliche, pure evil. He literally just cared about himself. Pure, unadulterated ego. He wanted to be at the top of the heap, and he was willing to do whatever was necessary to make that happen, and everything else to him, I shouldn't say to him, he, he may not even be aware of this. He may be so self-deluded that he doesn't, it doesn't occur to him that he is just a terrible person who has a gigantic ego and wants to be, he wants to be more than just a man. And he uh, excuses his actions constantly. He uses these things as an excuse, as a way to hide. Oh no, I'm not, I'm, I'm doing this, or I'm doing it because of this, or what I'm doing isn't that bad, because this is what humans actually want. I think all of that is just a load of crap, whether he is aware of it or not. I also think, uh, uh, what? Oh, right. Um, I also think that it is interesting to me that Arkham, Arkham himself dies in the most pathetic manner possible to a gun being shot by a human. I mean, granted, he was weakened before that, but the point remains. Again, kind of tying in that whole overall theme of humanity being the, the glue in between. Um, I have one last thing to toss out here. It's just kind of a pseudo-theorycrafting thing. So, one thing that's always kind of bugged me about this game is it's very empty. I mentioned there's four characters, and that's basically true. Some of the bosses have dialogue, and then there's the four characters. That's it. There's no NPCs. There's no people running screaming. We know this is a thing that can happen in this setting because DMC4 had that. DMC4 had random civilians and strangers and whatnot, right? So where the heck is everyone, right? Well, in this one, uh, I've actually come up with my own theories, plural, as to why it's so empty. Uh, you, you can feel free to decide for yourself which one is more likely. Uh, let's go ahead and give what I think to be the most likely theory first. <clears throat> this is a PlayStation 2 game. 
so rendering lots of people wasn't on the table. I know, big theory, right? It's a game theory. Sorry, sorry. And I just got sued for astronomical suns by... No, um... Second theory, slightly more lore-intensive. Uh, Arkham mentions the... Arkham and Lady both actually mentioned the sacrifices he was having to do, other than her mother, in order to accomplish all that he has. So, I mean, I don't even need to fill in the blanks there, do I? That's another possibility for exactly what was happening with regards to... You know, where uh, where all those people went. The third theory is the one I find most interesting, and it's kind of similar to something... Uh, admittedly, I didn't even realize this until I was going through this time, because I've act this, this third one is the one I actually like the most, theory-wise. But I never realized how similar it is to DMC, the reboot, until I was doing this replay. Because the final theory is the idea that the people are there. They're just on a different layer, if you will that the people aren't really seeing the massive earthquakes and the buildings being thrown around and the tower and the demons everywhere, that they're just going about their everyday lives kind of on another layer of reality. And the whole point of what Arkham was trying to do was to get rid of that layer, to really blend the two. So in other words, the first time at which the normal humans would be able to be seen and to see what's going on would basically be towards the end when he actually raises the thing up and opens up the portal and starts linking the two worlds. Um, and then, of course, when when that the, the amulet is separated and that's gone away, everything goes back to normal, relatively speaking. I like that theory the most. Um, it has a little bit of a metaphysical element to it, but whatever. Uh, let me check my notes really quick. I want to make sure I don't miss anything. But I think that's everything I wanted to talk about. I could talk about the obvious themes of legacy and family. The individual mattering rather than the power that individual wields. But all that's so obvious, I feel like it would be doing it a disservice. So rather than bothering, I'm just going to go ahead and cut this off. Hope you've enjoyed me talking about a strange game to talk about. Next week, we're talking about a very, very similar game. And if you want to know which one, you can go to my website and you'll see what's coming up next week. Otherwise, I'll see you next time, guys.